Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. It is not exactly as she was picturing the house where her father once lived. But she remembers it, or feels like she does. She puts the car back in gear and turns off the main road, bumping down the gravel drive toward it. Billy parks, and Rufus pops up in the back, his head veering between the driver and passenger seats, nosing her arm. Her hands stretch across the top of the wheel, palms thick and tingling from the long drive. She gets out and opens the back door. The dog bounds to the front porch, sniffs, and pees on the corner of the battered wooden steps. Thanks, she says, as he gallops across the overgrown yard. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm talking to Chanel Benz, author of The Gone Dead. Billy's mother was a white freedom writer, and her father a well-known black poet from Mississippi. At 34, Billy inherits her grandmother's house where her father once lived. She hasn't been back in 30 years and has no recollection of the accident that took her father's life. But there are people in the small Delta town who want to make sure she never learns the truth. I'm grateful to Chanel for doing this recording, even though in order to have quiet, she has to sit in her car on a sweltering July day because we're in the middle of a global pandemic and her children are home now. There's no camp or summer activities. Hi, Chanel. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galit. Thanks for having me. So let's start with, um, how did you come to write this incredible novel? Um, Well, I was looking for an idea big enough that would last for a novel. I had written a short story collection before this, and I was primarily writing short stories, although I, I didn't start out that way. Um, and it wasn't until I was driving, I was living in Mississippi with my husband uh, in a town called Hattiesburg, which is actually southeast Mississippi or south, southwest. Um, and there's not a whole lot to do there. So I started just getting in my car and driving to any sort of notable or historical spots. And I started driving into the Mississippi Delta. And as I started looking at different landmarks um, and just looking at the landscape in general, I started doing some different um, 
searches and research and finding out about the history. And I stumbled upon some civil rights era cold cases. And there are just these long lists of names and I focused mainly on Mississippi. And I just never heard of all of these people who had been murdered in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s um, and hadn't got any kind of justice. Some of them were on these really beta sort of websites that somebody had obviously made as a kind of labor of love, you know, when the internet first came out. And um, it would just have a sentence about uh, men and women and children in some cases. Um, and as I found, you know, different FBI records, it was pretty obvious about who the perpetrators were. Um, and there are a couple journalists who actually have helped bring these um, cases forward and there's been a few indictments, but it's only been through these journalists and a kind of communal effort. But I felt like these stories and these kinds of histories were very much in the air in the Delta and are obviously still recurring um, in our country today. And so I wanted to write about one of these lost stories. So interesting. There's a lot of really wonderful characters. Let's start by talking about Billy James. What's going on with her? And why does she buy a gun even though she has no idea how to use it? <laughs> um, so she, in uh, her grandmother dies, her maternal grandmother. And what's happened is her father was a civil rights activist and he was also a black arts poet in the 60s, early 70s. And so he had a small piece of land in the Delta that when he passed in 72, it went to her mother. And then when her mother died, when she was, oh gosh, I think in her sophomore year of college, it went to her grandmother and then eventually passed to her. So now this small piece of land that her father's family has owned has come to her. And so she's decided to go and check it out and see if any of her family is still there. But she hasn't been there since her father was alive and he passed when she was four. So when she goes out there, it's um, in the Mississippi Delta, which is a really lush but desolate landscape. You know, it's some of the richest soil. I think it even, I can't remember exactly, but I think it even is similar to the Nile. It's some of the richest soil in the, in the world. And um, so it has this lush greenness and these different rivers running through it, um, but there's almost no population there. And it's also a very poverty-stricken area. So a lot of the old buildings and general stores are still there, um, although they're sort of like crumbling into the earth. And, you know, the Mississippi Delta is known for the Delta Blues. Um, it's known for the Freedom Riders, for um, the Civil Rights Movement, um, for people like Medgar Evers, um, Fannie Lou Hamer, um, the blues musician John, uh, Robert Johnson. And so it has this deep, sort of, you know, it carries a legacy of slavery and sharecropping. Um, and in a way, it never feels to me like it's 2020 there, um, or even 2019. It always feels like it's a, a different era and a different time. And it's a very rural landscape. Um, and so this is very foreign for her coming from, she's coming from Philadelphia. And so she's in this old um, sort of shack uh, tenant shack that her father owned and she brings a gun I think because she calls her uncle which is her brother her father's younger brother and he's kind of told her like you're gonna need a dog and a gun and she happens to have inherited a dog so she's got the dog and I think she just kind of brings the gun because she's gonna be a woman alone 
And I think she feels like she's a relatively capable person. And so, of course, she'll just learn how to shoot it and be just fine. But I think it's um, something she does on a little bit of a whim. Mm. But, um, and I think also just to make herself feel safer out there alone. Well, we because, just know if yeah. there's a gun in the first act, what's going to happen. Yeah. So, Yeah. And I also just feel that, you know, it was also a kind of nod to the idea of like, as a woman, you can never go anywhere freely. Mm. Um, that you always have to have that awareness. Like you can't just go in the woods for a hike. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just felt like she can't just come to this place. She knows that. And so she's kind of, you know, haplessly arming herself. Why is the uncle the only fam- family member with whom she has con- with whom she kept contact? Um, well, her grandmother's passed, and that was her father's only sibling, really. And so I think a lot of the family has died out. But I, you know, she was there till she was four, um, and her mother never kept up that contact. So I feel like. You know, the child often, if the parents are separated, more often than not goes with the mother. And if the mother doesn't, you know, keep up contact with the father's family, that sort of dies off. Um, And so they're basically, you know, strangers to her. She has a few, you know, childhood memories with them, but they're living very different lives in the Delta. And, um, you know, even her contact with her uncle is, they've barely spoken. Right. Uh, one of her cousins comes down from Memphis, right? What What's mm-hmm. Lola's relationship with Billy? And, and let's discuss the college debt situation for Lola and others. Yeah, so they, ha- they share a grandmother. Um, so they are cousins, but I think they're sort of like second cousins. And um, but they, they, they play together as kids. So they have those kind of you know, when you play together and your favorite cousin, you just have that kind of warm bond of understanding with them. So when they reconnect, it just kind of comes back without them having to really do much work. It's just sort of like they pick up where they left off. Um, But Lola is a lot savvier than Billy. Um, You know, she's living in Memphis, so she's living in the city, but she comes down to the Delta all the time. Um, And she kind of has a love, I don't know if I'd say love-hate, but she has a love relationship with it but also she's very well aware of its flaws and the sort of darkness that's there and um yeah I mean she's trying to live her life but she's struggling because of debt and I just you know when I was first trying to write the story I wrote it in first person I wrote it in second I wrote it in third um and for a long time it was just Billy and then her father's voice and at one point it was her mother's voice and it wasn't until I realized that I needed to understand Billy by understanding the community that was surrounding her, that it wasn't just her story, that it was a story of these two families of this town, that it was a communal story. So that I needed multiple voices. So when I started thinking, well, who, which of these characters that I've created are going to speak? um, Lola is somebody that in a kind of sort of hostile environment is a friend um, is a confidant and is someone who's sort of grounded and rooted. But Lola needed to have her own struggles. Um, she needed not just to be a plot device for Billy. And so when I thought about what it would mean for a young black woman trying to make her way in the South, I thought about having taught in the South, um, 
college debt and how it is this thing that keeps um, the younger generation and even those of us who aren't so young anymore um, from buying a house, from purchasing a car, from having a family because you're paying, you know, uh, you might have a six figure amount that you're paying um, $500 a week. So money that would be going elsewhere, you just don't have. So you don't get to travel as much. And you just sort of feel this con constant burden and most, usually you're just paying off the interest. And so I wanted to sort of portray the nagging debt of that, um, the nagging weight of that, and um, how it really shrinks the landscape of what's possible for you, of what kind of life you're going to live. Um, and uh, makes you feel like what things you've actually accomplished are not much at all. Um, and that you've maybe made mistakes somewhere along the way. So I think, you know, now it's entered more of a national conversation, but especially the novel takes place in 2003. That just, that really wasn't part of the national conversation that there are so many students and so many people struggling with this debt. It's really getting in the way of them living freely. Um, and I also think when we talk about things like equity and, you know, there's been a lot of posts, I think it was, uh, uh, was it Bill Gates? No, 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 it was Jeff Bezos. You know, it's an anniversary of Amazon or something like that, or he invented it in his garage. And a lot of people have countered that by saying, well, when Amazon was failing in, I don't know, 1999, his parents gave him a quarter of a million dollar loan, you know, and the garage that he was, uh, you know, doing his, first startup business in what is like a beautiful little spot. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I don't have a garage. Um, and so, you know, kind of getting rid of those myth, the mythology of the bootstraps, like if you just work hard enough um, and this kind of like punitive um, attitude and especially for people that didn't come from wealth or inherited wealth or, you know, had that sort of leg up um, or maybe didn't even have the support of their family to go to college, but they went ahead and did it you know, getting rid of that means that it no longer feels like a punishment that you made choices to get an education. Um, and for some people, they were preyed upon, you know, there's a lot of predatory, um, predatory lending. Yeah, and one community was affected more than other communities in the United States. Exactly. Uh, actually, you brought up something really interesting about, I think it was Billy's grandfather who returns from fighting in Europe during World War II. I was wondering, how was it legal for him to be denied access to the GI Bill? Um, I, I talk don't about know. it. Yeah, I, I don't know exactly. I think there was just, um, I, I mean, I, I can't remember exactly my research, but there was, there's so many ways, you know, with like redlining and different districting, and there's so many ways in which black folks in this country have been historically, very recent, recently historically um, disenfranchised. But yeah, I think when we think of um you know boomers kind of benefiting from that um wealth or that kind of boom in the economy um a lot of it was people benefiting from the gi bill but black community didn't benefit from it because most of them were denied a gi bill like it's a it's a tiny tiny amount so that access to and even you know even if they did get the the gi bill for education they had to choose a black college and at the time, there would only be so many, um, like if you wanted to be a lawyer, 
well, there's in your state, there's only going to be so many black college, black law schools. And I think that was one of the first times that somebody tried to get into the University of Mississippi is because there wasn't another law program. Um, because uh, colleges were still segregated. So, yeah, I think one thing that is not common knowledge is how difficult it was for World War I and World War II Black veterans. Um, not only had they had this taste of, you know, overseas, getting to travel, having new experiences, but also, and fighting for their country, but also getting to feel like um, what it was to be treated with more um, equality, what it was to be treated more like not a second-class citizen um, in Europe and elsewhere. And so when they came back, they felt like they're expecting more, right? They're expecting to sort of have some pride, be repaid, that the, that the relationship with um, white people in the country is going to be different. But not only are they not going to get the same benefits, and not only are they not going to um, sort of rise in the ranks, that it's, there's actually going to be some intense hostility because the idea of black men coming back from war trained and armed is frightening to some people in the white community. And so there will always be, not always, but there is always an uptick in violence, in lynching, um, every time black veterans return from war. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Horrifying. Can you talk about what Lola means when she tells Billy that the movement broke a lot of people? Yeah, so that's one of those things that I didn't know until I started teaching um, about the Mississippi Delta, about the writers there. And there's a book I teach called um, Coming of Age in Mississippi by this writer, Anne Moody, and it's a memoir. And it's basically about her coming of age um, as a teenager and as a young kid in Mississippi. It starts at like age four and her parents are basically sharecroppers. And she is basically babysitting her two-year-old brother or sister. Um, and so it goes through her sort of coming of age and she eventually joins the movement. And at one point her family is being threatened and she's very torn about whether she should keep, you know, working with in the freedom schools or, you know, stop so that her family's safe. Um, and so it's really interesting. And one thing that she sort of talks about and actually happened to her is there was a lot of um, post-traumatic stress disorder coming from people's experiences from the movement and especially people who were heavily involved or leaders, you know, those, those who we know their names and those who we don't. Um, because you were in situations where 
you were staying in a hostile town trying to register black people to vote and trying to teach them, you know, the state constitution or whatever you had to do, whatever test they had to pass at the courthouse. Um, and you were in some kind of safe house, quote unquote, um, which at night, everybody would sleep on the floor so that because sometimes the windows would get shot out or maybe dynamite or a bomb would be thrown in. Um, you could be walking down the street and a car full of young men could come by and it could be Klan members. You And the police force were often involved in the Klan or they were definitely sympathetic 99% of the time. So, you know, and you have things like, you know, Mississippi burning. So there was a lot of tension and pressure that, you know, something could happen to you deep in the night or even in the middle of the day. And a lot of people came out of the movement. And like Ann Moody, she had this amazing book and she just never really wrote again after that. And so mm. there's a lot of people where they just sort of, you wonder what happened to them. And just some of them, they just never got over the trauma that they went through. Just to and, clarify, you're talking about the civil rights movement for anybody listening who didn't yeah. hear that. Okay. Yeah, and so it's interesting this time around with these protests and you know different people working on different sort of activism um, that there's a lot of talk about self-care. And although that's a kind of buzzword that I don't particularly care for, I'm really glad that people are talking about it because it's acknowledging that it's really exhausting to deal with people who are violently opposed to everybody having equality or you know whatever sort of thing, agenda you're sort of pushing forward for equality or to get awareness about Black Lives Matter or accountability for a murder. And um, yeah, it can be really exhausting on multiple levels, not just for strangers, but there can be people in your life that you know who, you know, are really resistant. And so just kind of acknowledging the emotional labor that goes into that um, has been really amazing to see. Mm. Tell us about Billy's father and mother and why they got married in Philadelphia. Yeah, so Billy's father was a civil rights, uh, uh, civil rights era um, activist, and he was also a black arts movement poet. Um, and the black arts movement, it was sort of the artistic movement, the artistic arm of the black power movement. And it was basically saying for the first time, I always think of the James Brown song, um, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. And it was the first time that black artists were celebratory about being black. You know, they weren't trying to be a certain kind of black or exceptional or, you know, playing to a white audience. They were writing for themselves and writing for their community and, you know, thinking about their roots and where they came from and not being ashamed of being enslaved um, and really celebrating, um, resistance and their stories and all those things. And so that's what the black arts movement was really about. Um, and her mother ended up being, she was a, a civil rights activist too. They were both freedom riders. Um, so they were trying to integrate the federal buses system. So Greyhound basically. Um, and they met and worked in the movement, you know, very young, 21 years old. And I did see a lot of relationships between um, black people and white people. And a lot of times they would get married, but more often than not, these relationships would not last. Um, and I think it was really interesting because you would have in these freedom schools and freedom houses where they were all staying is like, you know, 
young 20s, some even like 19, you know, coming out of college, a lot of them dropped out to be part of the movement um, where they had never shook hands with a white person or a black person, let alone, you know, shared a room. So you have a lot of these like deep sort of intense friendships and relationships. But then, you know, after the movement, after the, this kind of um, excitement and terror, they have to face the world. Um, so <clears throat> their relationship didn't last very long and they did have a child, but they quickly divorced. And I think it was mostly his idea because I think there was some guilt about marrying a white woman and not a black woman because he was inside of this movement that was about black celebration, that was about not being ashamed or, you know. Um, and so she goes on to become uh, a medieval scholar, a medievalist. And uh, partly that's because of my own fascination with the medieval era. Oh, okay. Um, but because I also felt that there was resonance. Um, and so I felt like there is, in the medieval era, you have the feudal system. You do have serfs. But even beyond serfs, just the peasant class, which is 99% of what most of us would be. We always think like, uh, picture ourselves as some noble person, um, but most of us would have been peasants. Um, that your bodies were connected to the land. Um, that you really weren't allowed to move around a lot. Um, there was a lot of vagrancy laws and you really lived and died in the same, you know, small patch of earth. Yeah, they were killing my people at that point. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was, those weren't good years. Um, Billy visits Jerry Hobson, whose wife died recently. How are they connected to Billy's family? So Billy hears that um, her, Jerry Hobson's wife, Hobson's wife um, was one of her father's close friends and she's just interested to find out more information about her father and so she goes to visit him and um, internally he is not wanting to talk about the past she really wants to talk about her father's death which she knows very little about um, she was there he died one night in 1972 um, when she was about four and she was in the house. Um, and it's always been told to her that it was an accident, that he fell in the woods and he hit his head and he died. Um, but she definitely wants to know more. And I think for me, it was one of those stories that you've been told so many times that you just accept it as the truth until you start to maybe tell other people or sort of re-examine it and realize there's all these missing threads. And in fact, it doesn't make sense. Um, and you kind of start rooting around for what the real story is, um, which sometimes becomes difficult or it becomes difficult, especially when you're older, to find the truth keepers. Um, so this is what she's trying to do. And he brings up the fact that she went missing that night, which is not something she knows about that right. time. Let's talk briefly about the McGee family. Sure. Are they good um, people? <laughs> well, um, so the McGee's are often there would be a sort of plantation farm owning family, white family, 
And at some point in history, they would have a lot of sharecroppers or they would have a lot of people that worked the farm, but also lived on the farm in tenant shacks. Um, and, you know, sometimes there would be upwards of a thousand people living on a plantation. Uh, and so her family was one of these families on a plantation living in these tenant shacks um, that was owned by the McGee's. But they were closer to the McGee's home. Her grandmother worked for the McGee's as a domestic servant. Um, and so she, her family is very intertwined with them. And they are now, because most of the tenant shacks have been knocked down, they are now her closest neighbor. So somebody that she's bound to talk to. Um, but black families that were really close to white families and still are when I've talked to people in the Delta, there still are these kind of entanglements. Um, they are sometimes called shadow families um, because your grandmother feels to them like their grandmother because they've been raised by her. You know, so there's a lot of this entanglement, but still, you know, your grandmother might be using the back door or it might be hard for your uncles to look that white family in the eye. Um, so a lot of the vestiges of the Jim Crow era are still present and there's still a sense, there's still, you know, massive wealth inequality. Um, so the McGee's are this family and I wanted to get into something that I think is not as present outside of the South, but definitely present in the Deep South, definitely present in Mississippi and the Delta, that you have these families where, you know, there's, there's definitely inequality happening. There's definitely racism happening, but there's also a lot of love. And um, I wanted to kind of, I talked to a lot of older men from the Delta who would tell me stories of their childhood best friends who were black or white, who when they you know, became teenagers, they were told they were no longer allowed to play with. And so Cliff, her father, and Mr. McGee, Jim McGee, are, were childhood playmates. But once they you know, grew up, their lives went in very different directions. And um, you know, although I think it's sometimes more interesting to talk less or focus less on the kind of mustache twil twiddling villains and focus on the people who are more often more apt to be silent and complicit. Mm -hmm. You know, um, MLK's the white um, moderate. So the people who are involved, who are stand, who are witnessing, who are standing kind of on the sidelines. Um, and so I wanted to get into those things using the McGee family. Yeah, it was, it was complex. There's one more character that I absolutely loved. The bumbling, brilliant <laughs> Dr. Melvin Hurley, who spends every minute of his time trying not to smoke. Yeah. Um, he was really fun to create. I wanted to have different versions of blackness. Um, and so I wanted black academia to be represented. And I sort of, one of the characters I was thinking about for Cliff was this poet, Henry Dumas. And Henry Dumas had some short stories and some poetry published, I think in like a few university journals, but he never had a book published in his own lifetime. It was only after he died that Toni Morrison, while she was an editor at Random House, 
publish some of his books and hails him as a genius. But he was this kind of a black arts poet, but very much on the fringe, not really known. And he was mysteriously shot and killed um, in Harlem by a white police officer in a subway station. Um, and the, the details around his death, they're sort of a bit hazy. But um, I conceive the doctor as somebody who has really found their person in Cliff and really wants to sort of make their name by being a Cliff James scholar, but has never been able to um, have any success whatsoever. Um, and so he was a, a character that also can talk about some of the academic accomplishments that Cliff had done in the era. And it made sense that he would be sort of contextualizing the black arts movement and the different poems and, you know, sort of concentrating on that in a way that nobody else is realistically going to be talking about it. Um, but I also felt like Billy needed some kind of ally. Okay, well, if you write another book about any of these people, could he please get tenure and, <laughs> <laughs> and just be really successful? And then can we also have Billy really happy? So, okay. Um, last question. I don't think this gives anything away, but near the end of the book, why did you choose to reference King Henry II of England? How does, how does that fit into your uh, way of thinking? Yeah, so like I said, the, the medieval kind of illusions, I thought that Billy would be thinking of them since her mother was a medievalist. Um, and I think that they lived a much, in the medieval era, they lived a much more physical life. You know, they dealt with death. They dealt with the body um, in a way that we don't, in a way that death has been sanitized and sort of removed literally away from our hands. You know, the body doesn't come into our hands. We don't wash and prepare our loved ones. They don't lay in our living rooms. Um, and so I think it's much more frightening. And then they also, you know, were mostly rooted in religion perhaps more than we are um, or it was more central but i also think with this physicality that words were much more physical especially because there were so many people who were illiterate but that words were a lot more powerful and so something that a king can just mutter and be overheard can set in motion all of these complex happenings can cause violence. And I think right now there's been a lot of downplaying when different people who have different platforms or politicians or, you know, even people who are quote unquote influencers um, say things that incite violence, say things that are racist or misogynistic that that actually can do harm and not just emotional harm but that actually can move people to violence or move people to not wear masks or take a medicine that they shouldn't be taking um that that actually can cause harm that that actually can spill blood and so i wanted to kind of say that you know words do matter they are this physical thing they are something that physically shapes us that the things we're told, that the stories we hear shape who we are.
how we breathe, how we walk, how we move through the world. I've just been nodding the entire time you've been talking for this whole interview. <laughs> so I'd like to know what you're working on next. Um, I, I, I've been doing some research on the yellow fever epidemic of 1878 in Memphis. Um, and since I'm here in Memphis, and I've been doing a lot of, uh, I've been uncovering some really, really interesting things um, about that time. So I'm thinking I'm definitely going to write something on it. I'm not sure if it's going to be a novel or a shorter piece, but we'll see. It's uh, not easy to do without childcare. Oh, yeah, but pandemics are hot right now. So. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I actually started that, started the idea before oh. the pandemic. So, okay. uh, Chanel, it was so lovely talking to you. This is a, um, always a wonderful conversation and I wish you the best of luck. I know your book just came, was reissued in paperback this year, came out last year. It was new to me. Um, it was a, a, a New York Times 100 notable books of 2019 and um, I think it should also be a notable book of 2020. A, a, a notable paperback. How about that? <laughs> Thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was my pleasure. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I've been talking with Chanel Benz, author of The Gone Dead. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Book Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle is an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creativity community. As NBN listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to Shuffle, www.shuffle.do forward slash NBN forward slash join. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.